Good morning. Thank you. <clears throat> I, too, can show you how to tie these if you'd like. I don't know who said that. So I'm one of the elders here at Strong Tower. For those of you who are visiting or you're not part of this body, uh, this is a really special place. It's most special because God is here and God is in what we're doing. Um, but it's also special because of the diversity and the love and the integration that we have the opportunity to experience. So I want to welcome you. Pastor Chris uh, is traveling back from Haiti, and that trip took about uh, 24 hours longer than he had planned or really, quite frankly, wanted. Um, and so he emailed us yesterday afternoon, and through a series of um, emails and communication, um, I'm standing before you today with a message, um, and I know that um, we would all prefer for Pastor Chris to be here, and not least of which is he himself would like to be back. So as you're listening to this message, if you could please just put him in your prayers and also Darina and the other team members that are coming back from Haiti, some of them won't actually get back until tomorrow. Uh, and the plan is for them to get back last evening. So um, in the emails, he asked if I would be willing to share from the lessons that we're doing in our uh, CEEC class, that's the Christian education and equipping uh, classes, that we do at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. So we have a class we're offering called Harmonizing Science and Faith or Harmonizing Science and Religion. And so I put together uh, some aspects of that that I'll share with you today. <coughs> but before I start that, if I could have the slides, I don't really wanna look at myself. That's really unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> thank you, good, uh, okay. Let me turn this on. Um, so um, I have a few disclaimers. First of all, I cannot cover the entire topic of science and religion. So let's say this is like the first, you know, 10 seconds of when science and religion meet. Um, I'm only gonna be able to give you broad strokes and some concepts about that. Um, some of you in this room I know are going to disagree with some of what I say. I am confident of that because I've talked to you, I've heard from you, um, I've heard about uh, those views and so, one of my apprehensions for agreeing to talk this morning was uh, preparing a message on relatively short notice. Another one was the fact that it, this is now the third message I've given and I've gotten some good feedback that, you know, that was tolerable, it was worth listening to, right? And so I don't wanna like, you know, there's a little bit of ego here probably tied up, like I don't wanna do a bad job, right? Um, but this is probably the biggest apprehension to be truthful. Um, I really uh, have thought a lot about this topic over the past uh, literally 25 years. Um, and I spent my uh, college years studying the philosophy of science and I have read an enormous amount about this. And so I have come to a place I feel comfortable with that it's not where every Christian needs to be. And I recognize that sometimes these issues can um, lead to conflict and lead to disagreement and that really isn't my goal. My goal today is to lift up God as the creator and the almighty. And so I would just ask for you, if you do hear things you disagree with, just to think through that and, and maybe use this opportunity to uh, strengthen your own faith and your own perspective. Um, and the last thing is that the age of the earth is not the issue. This has been a topic that has been sort of co-opted by North American evangelicals really in the probably the latter half of the 20th century. It is not something that is uniformly believed across the history of Christianity. So we'll talk briefly about that, but that is not the issue. It is a issue, but it is not the issue. And uh, I think that we will try to focus more on what I believe, which in my opinion are the issues. Okay, so um, Pastor Chris did ask me to talk about this topic, but you may be asking, really? 
is this really the time to talk about science? Given the fact that we have Christians in countries who are being killed by ISIS, who are being asked to watch their children being killed or tortured, really, this is the time to talk about evolution? We have Ebola that is rocking Africa and is now in our country, right? Um, we may, as uh, Pastor Daryl said during the worship service, be experiencing something in your personal life that you are struggling with, and Darwinian evolution is, seems to be really, really irrelevant. You may be wondering uh, why you're going through this relearn and thinking that this Sunday morning may not really help you with that. But uh, I would challenge you that deep within this topic is uh, what in some ways makes us godlike and what makes us human and separates us from other animals. And that is an innate curiosity to ask questions and to seek out why and how. And how you answer that question has a lot to do with how you see the world. I end with a quote, but I'll share, with it, share it with you right now. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity just like I believe that the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but by it I see everything else. The way you answer these questions helps you resolve what's happening in your personal life, how you see what's happening in this country across the world and across history. So it's really very important. It's also a very personal thing. I was struck whenever we were talking to the group that's in the Sunday school class and asking why did you take this class, and many of you shared some very personal things that these issues have challenged your faith. They've challenged the faith of your children. They've drawn people away from the truth. And so this has the power to distract you from this. And so I want to try as best I can in 30 minutes to equip you to feel confident that Nothing that we do in a lab, nothing that's in the paper, nothing that the sophisticated scientists say is going to challenge the truth of this. Let me go back to the slide. So uh, as an example, I said this was innate. We ask questions, right? So you've all worked with toddlers probably, right? Um, so they feel their heart beating and they say, why is my heart beating? Oh, your heart is beating to get blood because all of your parts are dying. Oh, why is that? Well, there's nutrients in your blood and oxygen in your blood that those cells need. Oh, why is that? Well, in the case of oxygen, we need oxygen because part of the cell uses that to make energy. Well, how does that work? Well, there's an oxygen molecule that gets into a part of the cell called the mitochondria, and through that process, you get to make ATP. W well, why is that? <laughs> and at some point, you're like, that's just the way God did it. <laughs> and, and so it, it's not, you know, toddlers are not educated. They're not sophisticated. It's innate to ask questions. It drives us. We love as humans to learn. God put that in us. And we should not suppress that out of fear of what answers we might see because he can answer our questions. He's bigger than anything that we might ask of him. We also do it, right? Why is this happening to me? Why is my family going through this? Why are we having financial struggles? Why didn't they keep those people in Africa? 
What does that say about us when we ask a question like that? I don't know what it says about us, but it's okay to ask the questions and see where it leads. Asking questions is part of who we are. So as I have on the slide, I want to propose to you that science is applied toddlerism. It's asking questions, the how and the why, in a very sophisticated way. So uh, this is an idealized scientific process. So it is, first of all, materialistic, meaning scientists only study what they can see and analyze. That's good. The problem arises when they think that that's all that exists. And so that is one of the distinctions between science and religion. It is not a problem to, to only study what we know, what we rather what we can see, but it is confusing then and incorrect in my opinion to then say that if we can't see it and analyze it, that it's not real. Scientists follow data, not dogma, in an idealized setting. The data, the data drives where the theories go, the data drives what we're studying. In science, anecdote is not Ridiger, it is not a data set, right? So I used this salve on my hair and my hair grew back. I didn't obviously. Um, but let's just say somebody says that. Well, that worked for you, maybe, right? I don't know if it worked for me. Um, I had hiccups and I drank some sugar water while standing on my head with my left, right finger up and that my hip just went away. So it must work, right? Anecdote is not science. And for those of you who interact with those of us who are in a scientific world, including my family, when they say things to me, I'm always like, really? It doesn't mean I don't think it's true. It's just that I don't think it's true enough for me to come out and say that I would recommend doing this for somebody else without it being studied, right? We explain data using a model or a paradigm, and we expect that those paradigms, the way of viewing the world, will shift over time. We used to think that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything went around it, and there was, there was data that supported that. I mean, like, look, the sun goes like that, right? So when we get new data, we change what we believe. Science is inherently changing to get closer and closer to the truth, and religion doesn't typically do that. Yes, there are changes, but the core values of a religion does not change. Pastor Chris does not stand up here and say, based on what I know in 2014, my interpretation of John 3.16 is that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. And when I talk to patients in my clinic, I say, based on what we understand about this condition in this year, this is what we know. But that may change tomorrow, literally tomorrow, right? And so there's this, there's this tension between the certainty of religion and the inherentness of science to want to continue to change and, and use information to, to uh, meander about in our path and our uh, journey to truth. But uh, the book that we're reading, uh, which is called When Science Meets Religion, the book that we're reading in our uh, Sunday school class, has this quote. Many historians, philosophers of science, and theologians have called into question this sharp contrast, arguing that science is not as objective nor religion as subjective as had been assumed. So let's start with the religious part. You believe Christianity not because just of what this says, but also based on your experiences. You feel it in your heart. You know the spirit is there because he changes you. You pray and you see that God answers that, not necessarily by resolving the problem, but by being very much a part of your life during that problem. You have data that feeds in 
and reinforces your views. And sometimes God brings in data to challenge our understanding of him and what it means to be a Christian, right? But our core faith in him doesn't change. So there's some similarities to how we believe, uh, how we live out our Christian life. Same thing for scientists. I had on the previous slide idealized scientific process, right? A lot of scientists are very dogmatic. A lot of science is shaded by the theories, but that's not true science. And so uh, one of my professors in the college class, I took a year-long class on the history of science. This professor was an expert on Darwin, and uh, he, uh, at the end of the class, challenged us to find differences between religion and science, and it was amazing. So I think there was, there were 80 people in the class, 79 of them were not Christians, and it was very hard to distinguish the two, and you start putting out, so I think that as you're working through this process, you are already aware probably, and if not, just be aware that science is not all truth. There are certainly biases and prejudices that come into the work of science, what's funded, uh, what isn't funded, what scientists study, how they interpret the facts. And not all of religion is just believing in spite of the facts, right? So if you're engaged with people who are challenging your views, I think it's helpful to sort of have that perspective and how much of what they actually believe has really been proven in a materialistic way. And how much do they take and then go that next step and say, because of this, I know there's no God. Because of this, I know that this book is not true, right? They're not doing science anymore. And that's okay, but they need to acknowledge that that's not science anymore. So um, let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. That's really the most important part of chapter 1. I want you to major in the majors and minor in the minors. The major of chapter 1 is that there was a God and he created the universe. That's it. That by itself is pretty radical if you're in a scientific community, right? The first of all is that there's a God, and just because I want you to show that I do take a little bit of a scientific approach to this, I gave you lots of references for this that God is the creator, okay? So I don't, you know, don't, don't depend on one verse, depend on all those there. So God is the creator. How did he do it? So I'm going to push you maybe a little bit and have you think about the Big Bang Theory. So the Big Bang Theory says, uh, I'm sorry, rather, the, I'll give you the history of the Big Bang Theory. So in 1925, Abby George's uh, Lamatre, I'm not sure if she's French, sorry, was an astrophysicist and Jesuit priest, interestingly enough. And he was the first scientist to present with the Big Bang creation event. He said, God created the universe through a Big Bang. In 1926, Edwin Hubble, for which the Hubble spacecraft was named, established the velocities of galaxies result from the expansion of the universe. This is the idea that it started in a singular place and then expanded over time. In 1946, George Varno calculated that the universe is expanding from a near infinitely hot condition to form the present abundance of elements. We're kind of rewinding back to get this infinitely hot, and it expands over time. And then in 1965, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson detected the radiation that's left over from the creation event. Right? So there's some scientific evidence that the Big Bang event occurred. So what does that mean? in terms of the timing of how, we, how long our universe has been here. If it is correct, and you don't actually have to necessarily endorse this, but if it is correct, the Big Bang happened about 15 billion years ago. Our galaxy developed about 10 billion years ago, 5 billion years ago, our solar system formed, 
than the Earth formed about 4.6 billion years ago, but the atmosphere around the Earth was too heavy and thick to support life. We need to get something to get rid of all that atmosphere. So the theory goes that a, a body, a very large body from space, collided with the Earth. Most of the mass of that body, when it hit the Earth, was absorbed into the Earth. And that had a series of events that occurred, a ripple effect. First of all, it blasted away a lot of the Earth's atmosphere. The moon was formed from the debris. Now sunlight can reach the surface of the Earth. By, by the, the mass of this body being absorbed into the Earth, the mass and density of the Earth allowed the Earth to now retain water. And this extra mass slowed the speed at which the Earth was spinning. All of those sequence of events had to occur in order for life to be able to be here. So what I would propose to you is that if you are willing to think about the implications of this universe being around for a very long time, there is so many sequence of events that have to be exactly in place at just the right time that I personally don't have enough faith to believe that could happen by chance. And so this is pointing to a supernatural power that could make that choreograph just the right way. So if that's true, then one of the questions is, is there any evidence in the Bible about a Big Bang Theory? So uh, you may not have time to turn there, but Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21 and 22 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was formed? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So for those Christians who believe in the Big Bang, they believe that this is one example where he stretches this out almost like a scroll. Isaiah 42, 5 says, this is what the Lord, I'm sorry, this is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. And then also in Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 11. Tell them this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. So in the Big Bang Theory, the idea is it started somewhere and expanded over time. And we can see evidence of that, radiation and heat. And this may be an allusion to that. This doesn't prove the Big Bang. I don't think it's essential to know the Big Bang, but I want you to feel confident that when you hear about this, this actually is consistent with the fact that there had to be someone who started it. And so I'm not the only one who said this. In fact, Stephen Hawking, who wrote a book called A Brief History of Time um, that I referenced in the previous slide, actually said the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications, and he is not a Christian, let me tell you. John Hawkins said, it was necessary for the Big Bang to be extremely uniformly and yet with sufficient local variations for the formation of galaxies to be possible. The whole sequence has occurred with extremely high precision and exact timing. So instead of giving you all the details and reading, you can read books about this. It's pretty phenomenal. Just take my word on it. There is an enormous number of things that had to be just the right amount, at just the right chemicals, at just the right time. I don't have enough faith to believe that could happen by chance. The astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. 
that's pretty dramatic for an Africa visit who is not a Christian. So I want to also uh, give this quote. This is from a book that we're reading. Uh, this JASPRO astrophysicist says, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream, hit by nuances, because it's beyond the materialistic elements of science. He, this science, this scientist, has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Pretty cool, huh? So, I would just uh, encourage you to think about the implications of the Big Bang for a moment, because there are those of us who consider ourselves to be devout Christians who believe this. And believe that the power of this is that it shows that there is a creator, a starter, who had it all sequenced out. And the universe is not infinitely old. It's actually fairly young. And the reason that's important is because it has implications on the theory of evolution, which we'll talk about next. The theory of evolution says that the fittest survive. And they do that through random variation, which we now know as mutations. Darwin did not know about DNA, but we now know that mutations in our genes make us change. And there's a selective advantage. So maybe we have a gene that helps us stay warmer in a cold climate, and so we survive, and then we procreate, have children, and those children with the same genes live, right? Those changes, small incremental steps over time, add up to you and me going from, as one book says, goo to you by way of the zoo. <laughs> so I just let that process for a bit. Uh, so very, very small incremental changes over time. Darwin thought it was infinite amount of time. You really need that for evolution to occur because the changes are going to take so long that four billion years, the age of the earth, if you believe in Big Bang Theory is not long enough time. So the fittest survive to reproduce. That's our purpose. That's why we're here, to reproduce. Once our genes have been procreated, we can take care of our grandkids. That is, that is what this amounts to, right? So what evidence did Darwin use? This is his book on the origin of species. I read this in my class. I'm not going to read it to you here. Um, so I don't know how many times there's a pulpit in the U.S. where there's the origin of species standing right here. Um, so this is what he said in this book. I'll save you several hours of reading. He uses selection of animals and plants by breeders. You can breed certain plants or certain animals by how you breed them together, right? But there's a breeder there who's picking them, right? That's not chance. Um, when you breed dogs to be really, really little and yappy or really big, they're not necessarily very healthy. And if you let them then go back to outside of breeding, they go back to a wild type. So it's only through this artificial intelligence that steps in and does that where you can actually get these unique kinds of uh, breeds. I don't know. I don't think that's a really strong evidence for uh, evolution over time leading to humans. Because they're first of all, they're still dogs, right? They're still plants. We do know that bacteria change. We give them antibiotics. They develop resistance. But the different thing about antibiotics and viruses, unlike us, is that their half-life is very short. They procreate very, very quickly. 
right? And our mutation rate in humans is much lower, most species of animals. It's much, much lower. So yes, you can see changes in bacteria, but that's only because of their unique life form. Once you get more complicated, our um, reproductive rate and our lifespan is much too long compared to bacteria. So there's another example about the peppered moth, which I, I think I'll skip, because um, at the end of the day, they're still moths, they just have different colors. So what Darwin said is that these small changes over time, if you have enough time, will add up to large changes. And so that's what creationists call macroevolution. This microevolution, small changes over time, that's microevolution, leading to big changes, that's macroevolution. So going from amphibians and reptiles to birds and mammals, that's macroevolution. And so I would encourage you to challenge those who you talk with that the evidence for evolution is for microevolution, not for macroevolution. It's not getting to the complexity of us in small changes. So what could you use, what data could you use to respond when you hear people talk about evolution? So I'm just going to give you two examples to probably equip you with things. One is actually the – oh, the first one actually is the Big Bang. So you could try this phrase out. I don't believe in macroevolution because I believe in the Big Bang Theory. That will really throw people for a loop. There's not enough time – the idea being there's not enough time if you believe in the Big Bang for us to have evolved in these small changes. The second one is actually the fossil record. The first critics of Darwin were not religious leaders. They were actually paleontologists and geologists because the fossil record does not show these, these transitional forms little by little by little by little. It's not there. In fact, there's a sudden appearance of a fully formed species, and it stays that way for a very long time. Now, some of you are wondering about the uh, accuracy of carbon dating. Um, I would say that what I'm going to say could apply in both cases, but if you believe that the carbon dating is accurate, and we don't have time to go into that, but if you believe it's accurate, um, and you believe that those fossils really were tens and tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, then uh, this is a strong evidence that there is not gradual change over time. If you believe that the fossil record is an inaccurate dating, then it doesn't really matter. This is this you, you would be discussing this topic at a very different level with folks in the scientific world, actually, um, because then you're going to be talking about the impact of the flood and about uh, carbon dating itself. So this is presupposing that the accuracy of the fossil record dating is accurate. There are no transitional forms. Species that were supposed to evolve from one to the other appear simultaneously in the record, right? So uh, the best example of this is the Cambrian explosion. Before that, that's a, a period of time in evolution. Before that time, the only thing in the fossil records are bacteria and algae and maybe a few simple eukaryotes. Eukaryotes are multi-celled organisms, right, with a single cell. And then suddenly, about 600 million years ago, if the fossil record dating is accurate, all of the animal phyla occur, bang, all at once. And they stay like that until they either become extinct or we get to present-day forms. There's no gradual change over time, right? So there's no evidence. So what I'm using is this fossil record against the theory of evolution. Um, So the next slide is a quote from Darwin that says that we should be able to see all of these records. Here we go. 
Darwin said, why, if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, these accumulations of mutations, why do we not see everywhere innumerable transitional forms? Why is not all nature in confusion instead of the species being, as we see them, well-defined? The mere fact we actually have well-defined species would suggest that this didn't happen slowly over time. Um, in the next quote, we paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the gradual adaptive change. And the quote goes on to say, we've said that the fossil record supports it when all the time we knew it didn't. So when you hear things in the media and the press about the fossil record saying that this fossil shows that this happened and it challenges your belief in the creator, the few things I would say is the overall fossil record actually is power against it, evolution, not for it. And the second thing is just wait, because many times Scientists make mistakes. And what they say that is right now may change over time. So don't be challenged too much by it. But think about the overall picture of the fossil record. So Darwin's explanation for this, why there aren't these transitional forms, was that there was an incomplete, we didn't have enough time yet. If we just were given enough time, we'll find all these transitional forms. Well, the reality is that that hasn't changed several decades, hundreds of years later there is still no transitional forms. And so it's such a powerful argument that Gould and Geldridge in the early 1970s suggested this theory called punctuated equilibrium. I love this idea. At least it responds to the data. What they said is that evolution is going along and accelerate, and suddenly it speeds up. And it happens really, really quick. And that's why you don't see. Okay, well, that's consistent with the evidence, but Speeding up a bad theory does not make it correct. <laughs> it is consistent with the evidence, but it's not really Darwinian evolution. It's not even neo-Darwinian evolution. So the last point on there is that most neo-Darwinists, neo-Darwinianists, do not believe in punctuated equilibrium. But the point is that science tried to respond and say, this is not working for us, right? So I think I hear a lot of times people say, what does that mean? They just, the New York Times just put this out or, or uh, NPR just had this about this fossil record that shows something. And it's like, look, let's talk about the fossil record. Where are all the transitional forms? And while I'm thinking about it, uh, no, I'll do that in a minute. Let's do that. So let's talk about this, because this is right where I want to do it. So that's the first issue is the Big Bang. I can't believe in evolution because I believe in the Big Bang. Just try that sentence out. See how it goes with your policy of expressing your belief. Uh, the second one is the fossil record. And the third is irreducible complexity. This comes in lots and lots of different forms. It was first mentioned actually in Romans. Um, so Romans chapter one, verses 18 uh, and 19 said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness. I'm sorry, I'll say it again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that man, men are without excuse. We can look at nature and see evidence of God. Paley said if you see a watch with all its intricacies, you assume there's a watchmaker. When you see all these intricacies that have to be just in place to make a simple cell, you would say it didn't happen by chance. The data that's included in our DNA is so complicated, you, can't, you 
would say, I just think it's so complex, I don't have enough faith to believe that happened by chance. It's called irreducible complexity. There's no such thing as a simple cell. It's very complicated. It couldn't get there just by chance. A 5% of a cell is not a functioning cell. It all has to be there. So the example I was going to give is that when you were challenged by this, like say you're in a conversation, particularly for those of you who are young who may be in college or thinking through this with your peers, and you were challenged to think about something, you don't have to have the answer right away. You may be challenged, you don't, have, you don't know what to say, right? You gotta go back and research it. Praise God, right? I'm gonna learn through this. I'm gonna figure out and God is gonna show me the answer. He may just say, that's not for me to reveal to you right now, but in the process, you will come to know me better. But don't leave it there. Challenge the other person too. Challenge them to un- explain the fossil record. Challenge them to explain metamorphosis by evolution. How does that happen? How do you get a little bit of a cocoon? Then you then get a butterfly that goes back to a moth. How does that happen a little bit at a time? I have no idea. So if they can explain metamorphosis while they're working on that, you can be praying and working on yours very soon. <laughs> you explain this irreducible complexity, right? It's a two-way street. If they attack you, make you feel stupid, right? That's not science. That's unfair, right? So you can go on the offensive a little bit. Okay. Oh, I'm, gonna s- I'm sorry. There, there is this last thing is actually kind of important. This could take a several hours by itself. One of the critiques of this is that th- the idea there's a designer, everything is so well designed, but some of the things are not very well designed. Um, and so it's like, well, if God's perfect, why would he design it like that? And uh, the typical very short response to that is that it's part of the impact of the fall. And I think, although I really don't have any scriptural backing for this, that God probably stepped in and changed education so that we became mortal. And so things that were not currently working perfectly now, is, is I think it's part of the fall. And it's not just me. I think that's what a lot of Christians who, who work in this area would say. Um, and so there has to be a give and take in that. Okay, so let's finish by talking about the theological implications of evolution. Scientists are going to say, I just want to study what I can see, and that's all I'm going to worry about. I'm not going to make any distinctions. But then they do sometimes, right? They go beyond that, and they say, I'm going to make judgments about what I can't see based on what I study or do see. So George Gaylord Simpson said, man is the result of purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. We're just here by chance. This is the major thing. What you think about the fossil record, the age of the earth, and the Big Bang, uh, those are sort of interesting to me. I wanted to give you some ammunition maybe or some ways of thinking about it, push you a little bit to think differently. Those are still fairly minor. This is a big deal because we think that we are here for a purpose and we are part of a design, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I love this question, the very first question, what is the purpose of man? You have no purpose. You're just here by chance. Good luck. No. The purpose of man, the chief in a man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think these verses are actually worth reading. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. Everything you do is for the glory of God. That's our purpose. Right? 
I was, as we were worshiping, it came to me that those people who love to study things, who are scientists, folks like Dr. Crow, who are trying to gain new knowledge and move us forward to how we understand God's creation, what they're doing is a form of worship, in my opinion, right? It's as powerful as raising your hand to music. It moves us. It's innate to who we are. And we should not, as Christians, squelch that because we're fearful of science. Because it's just as much of who we are as the joy we get by raising our hands and worshiping God. The other verse is from Psalm 16, uh, verses 5 through 11. Lord, you have assigned me my portion of my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken no matter what the evolutionists may say, no matter what specific question I can answer. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will test secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We are supposed to enjoy him. That is our purpose. We are also accountable to a higher power. My favorite verse, Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, O God, what is good. There is a good. That's the first thing. There are people in this world who do not believe that good is good. It's relative. There is a good. And this is where it comes from. And I'm going to declare it. This is where it comes from. This is what is good. He requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We are accountable. Scientists are human. And the power of the evolutionary theory is that there is no God. I am not accountable. This is false. It is a very, very tempting proposition. Right? It depends, our faith depends on God telling us and showing us, right? We depend on him opening our eyes. It's not anything that we do. It's what he is showing us. But ultimately, I think that uh, on the slide is actually the quote from um, C.S. Lewis about it allows us to see. So I would encourage you as you're going through this process, as you're sorting through what you believe, as you might be challenged, as you're thinking about these questions, I would also encourage you to pray for those who have not seen the truth not of the age of the earth and the Big Bang and transitional forms, but haven't seen this truth, that man has a purpose, there is a good, and we are accountable to God. Okay. So my concluding thought is that I want you to major in the majors and minor in the minors. And I had read part of, first, uh, read part of Romans earlier, but I want to go back to that. Um, so the verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's a pretty hard thing to actually live by in an academic setting. That phrase right there, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And there are many other verses that talk about that faith and that righteousness being from Jesus to us, not of ourselves. That is the major thing. As you're going through these conversations, don't lose track of that. And if you can guide people 
to that that is much more important than any other specifics that we talked about. So on the slide I say, it's really about Genesis 1-1, that there is a God, there was a beginning, he created. It's not about the age of those days in Genesis 1-1. I love talking about that. I think it's interesting, but that's a minor point. It's really about our purpose on earth, not the age of the earth. It's really about whether or not there is a God who is intimately involved in us. I'm not going to just settle for there is a God who set it all started, and then he steps back. He's intimately involved. If anything matters, everything matters. Everything has a purpose. We don't know what that purpose is, but everything has a purpose. That's a major idea. And if the theory of evolution is correct, then this is false. That's why this is a major point. It's not about whether you know the answer. It's do you know who the answer is? In that class I talked about where the, we went through this year of the history of science, and my professor was an expert in Darwin, he would constantly ask, are there any questions? Are there any questions? Are there any questions? So people could had done the reading, they would come, right? At the very end of the course, he said, are there any questions? There are no questions. And he said, are there any answers? And I sat silent. sat silent. It's not what you think about this book that makes a difference. It's what you think about this book that makes a difference. He is the answer, and I'm going to declare it now even though it's like 20 years too late. <laughs> He's the answer. Don't lose track of that. I encourage you to recognize that for some people, this is a big deal. It can challenge their faith. I was surprised about that. I thought it was just me, but for a lot of you, it challenges your faith. I would also encourage you not to be distracted by the most prevalent views in evangelical Christianity because most of the time, those views are not endorsed by those of us who work in the scientific community. I would encourage you to recognize that there's power in how you answer these questions, not in the specifics, but in who you think Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? He asked that. Thanks for your time. I could listen to him speak all day long because he breaks it down in such a layman's terms we can understand the truth of God's word and how it correlates with science. And as we close today, we all have to answer the question. Now here's, here's, here's the beauty about how science works in religion. The enemy wants you to think of religion as a lie. Getting in God's presence is a lie. And he'll do anything and everything that he can to make you believe that his lie is actually the truth. So we have to study the word of God as well as study his creation so that we'll have a balanced position when it comes to knowing the truth of God's word. Although we know 
in our spirit man that the truth is the truth and God's word is the truth. Still, it's not about you. It's about others who don't know the truth. And when they don't know the truth, can you imagine you having the answer and having that answer and knowing you have that answer and someone else dying and going to hell? think about it. We all have the responsibility to know what the truth is, scientifically as well as biblically. So as we close today, we have about 15 minutes. As we close today, just allow the Spirit of God to minister to you. As Dr. Ryan Krieger has ministered to me in his word. So relax for a second. Hear God speak to you through His Spirit and answer Him. Well, I don't know what it is, but God knows exactly who you are. So allow Him to speak to you as we close today.